0: In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is First to Know the Nature of Things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look,
1: I'm going to shirt front, Mr. Porton. I am a fighter and not a quitter. I don't think I know. And I want to thank
0: uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Hi there, Mark Kenny. here with another Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm, of course, from the Australian Studies Institute in ANU and also the School of Politics and International Relations. And isn't 2023 already shaping as a fascinating political year with the cost of living crisis, which seems to be getting worse? I think the Reserve Bank's meeting, as I speak to you now, and uh, we, you know, the, the, all the expectations are for an interest rate rise, and not even the last of the interest rate rises for this year. There could be two more, could be three more. Who knows? Either way, it's a clear and present political uh, danger for the government, notwithstanding that uh, the latest news poll showed Anthony Albanese's Labour Party leading the coalition by, I think, 10 points. Nonetheless, uh, uh, you know, a, um, a certainly a difficult uh, set of circumstances for any government because a lot of people are going to be coming off... Uh, their fixed mortgages, fixed rate home loans, and they'll be going. I think it's eight hundred thousand of those uh, that at some time this year will go onto the variable rate, and they'll have a sudden jump in their payments, and uh, they won't be happy about it. But that's just only part of the story, of course. All everyone knows that uh, grocery prices have been going up, energy prices have been going up. Labor had promised that it would. Um, Cut uh, power bills by $275. And of course, the circumstances have significantly worsened. Some policy changes have been put in place in relation to gas and so forth. But all that's doing is necessarily making it lower than it would have got to, but certainly not a cut of $275. So the opposition's talking a lot about that. But of course, the other big thing is the referendum on the voice. Now, There's a lot of discussion about this. It's sort of the other big sort of issue for the year, and it's dominating. But there's no real signposts along the way. You sort of get to the end and you work out, depending on which side you're on, uh, whether there are enough votes uh, to get it up or enough votes to stop it getting up. And it's very hard to sort of measure because, of course, the referendum bar is quite high. You have to have a majority of votes across the nation, and there has to be a majority in four of the six states. Leaving the territories aside, they don't count. Uh, such is the way this has all been designed, but it makes it quite hard. And we yet to find out what uh, what the the Liberal Party is going to do. Although you don't have to be um, you know deeply gifted analysts to work out the the signs are not promising there in terms of a uh, uh, enthusiastic support for the Yes case. And of course, the other big thing that happened just in the last twenty four hours, as I record this, was that. The Greens, uh, Victorian Senator Lydia Thorpe, a First Nations Senator from that state, um, quit the party uh, so that she can pursue what she says is representation of the unrepresented black sovereign movement. Uh, So she's going to do that from the crossbench. Now, that's freed up the Greens, of course, to come in behind the voice. They say they're still pro-treaty first, but they're going to be supporting the voice, it seems. Uh, Lydia Thorpe, not so. Uh, it be interesting to see what the implications are for that uh, in terms of um, both the, the campaign, because that's another voice, this time on the left, I guess, of the spectrum, another Indigenous voice that is going to be arguing against uh, a yes vote uh, in favour of treaty first. And, of course, it changes a little bit the equation in the Senate for the government because the government now needs all the Greens. It needs another vote, presumably Pocock, although not always, but certainly um, uh, Pocock is one of those votes that uh, the government uh, often feels ho- hopeful of getting. And it's going to need another vote again. Now, that could be Thorpe still, depending on what the issue is, or it could be Jackie Lambie, but one imagines crossbench senators are going to be wanting to extract some sort of um, dividend for their support. So yeah, it's really going to be fascinating. The other th- question it raises for me though, and I-, I wonder what your thoughts are on this, is what it says about our democracy. You'd think a Senator who was elected in 2022 for eight years, or well, six years actually, um, um, six years, yeah, two, three-year terms, that would get her to tw- uh, 2028. You'd think that suddenly decamping, leaving the party on the um, on, on the basis of going to the crossbench and leaving that um, that brand on which she was elected, uh, that that would require resignation. But that's not the way it works in our system. She gets to go to the crossbench, um, and the voters who presumably most of whom voted for her because they voted for the the Greens brand, um, in fact, they didn't. Not that many of them voted directly for her. I think she was good for about 40,000 votes or something similar. You know, the the Greens, have they're down a senator. The Victorian Greens constituency is down a senator. uh, And the system allows her to sit there for the balance of her six-year term uh, on the crossbench. And I think some people are wondering, is that really all that democratic? And it does make me wonder whether she would have done it were the requirement on her that she had to resign from Parliament as well. My guess is no. Anyway, enough of me rambling. My guest this week, and we're going to be talking about things outside Australia, so I just thought I might, you know, sort of quickly recap on some of the things that are happening in Australia. But my guest this week is Sophia Gaston, uh, who has joined us many times before, I'm glad to say, usually from Britain where she lives, and, um, She's now the head of foreign policy and UK resilience at Policy Exchange, which is a conservative-aligned think tank close to the UK government. And she specializes in, as I say, foreign policy, looking at the UK's relationships with the US, Europe, Russia, China, and the like. You specialize in everything, really, Sophia.
1: Not everything. Um, just a couple of priority theaters.
0: Uh, a fairly, yeah, they are priority theaters, aren't they? Uh, U.S., Europe, Russia, and China, uh, and pretty active, uh, active fields of interest at the moment. Uh, let's start light, perhaps even lighter than here. If I can, um, what did you make of this story about the Chinese surveillance balloon that was tracking across America at some ungodly height? I think it was. Some people are saying twenty k's above the ground. Um, I've even heard it said this morning that it was up to 40 kilometers up. Uh, so, you know, very hard to detect. And apparently, not the first one of these things. Huge, a huge aircraft, actually, said to be, as the Americans say, 200 feet tall. So, what's that about? I don't know, 60 meters or something. Uh, and the equipment, you know, hanging underneath it. Um, enormous you know bigger than a bus you know and therefore that was one of the reasons why there was some reluctance to shoot it down over land because at that height you can't really say exactly where it's going to land that's the argument anyway although the republicans are saying that Joe Biden should have acted with much more prejudice and 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 taken it down straight away and i know uh, as we speak there's just been an announcement that there's another Chinese balloon that's been detected over South America, Uh, although apparently the story is that this is not a this is a uh, sort of a civil aviation balloon. Um, Not sure whether many people are going to buy that, but and the Taiwanese have uh, apparently detected balloons before. So you know, it's just a really fascinating story. This you know, it's like we've got all this high tech, and a lot of the equipment that's underneath it is high tech, of course, but. It's pretty low-tech as well, the idea of a balloon, isn't it? Pretty passive and silent.
1: Well, balloons are increasingly becoming a part of the sort of hard power security arsenal. And I mean, I think it is part of this broader trend towards the skies. I mean, obviously, maritime is still deeply important and we've got a lot of cables and things under there. So, you know, maritime power and and, and maritime security remains absolutely vital. But we've also been investing a lot in space and satellites and, and looking to the sky. Um, I think this is a really interesting story because clearly there's been a bit of a debacle um, on the Chinese side. I don't think it was intentional that uh, it strayed so vitally uh, into, uh, you know, the heart of America's nuclear sites and, and in such a conspicuous way. Um,
0: That's the nature of balloons, isn't it? They're, they're not easily, you, you can't control them really. They're subject to the air currents.
1: Well, indeed. And I think it's funny because the Chinese line on this has been oh, this is benign. This is a weather monitoring balloon. And if you think about how important. Climatic information is at the moment as as not just you know in in terms of um, you know the sort of day to day decisions that governments are making, but sort of strategic and security decisions that are being made around climate. Uh, It's funny that that is sort of the the Chinese line saying this is very benign. Um, Actually, it it, it, even in that case would be something of concern. Um, I I think there's more to it than that. Uh, The Americans are currently scrambling to. Um, dredge up the debris uh, from the ocean. And they've got a big team on that at the moment, just to try and really understand what kind of equipment was underneath this balloon. But I think the interesting question to me is around the consequences for the Blinken visit to Beijing.
0: Yes, which was sort of put on hold immediately on the strength of this controversy, wasn't it?
1: Indeed. And there'd been a lot of work. And I think we'd seen a bit of efforts on both sides really to try and uh, stabilize the relationship in sort of in terms of public diplomacy recently there's been a little kind of cooling of some of the more heated language um, leading up to this summit and and I think there were ambitions that this could you know I think in the same way that Australia has been seeking to do just sort of move things into um, it into a, a a slightly more predictable environment uh, so the fact that the trip was called off I think, is really significant, and it does make you think about the calculations that Washington are making about this apparatus. I do very much believe that it's the fact that it was physically there above the United States. I mean, every single day, the United States government is intercepting various, um, you know, intrusions and 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 sort of modes of influence from from China of, of varying degrees of concern. Um, this one uh, was just very visible to the American people, and right there above, uh, you know, in the skies, hovering over the United States, like something from Independence Day. And I think, <laughs> I think it's that sort of retail politics element of it that made it very difficult for Blinken to go ahead with that trip.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. So, in a sense, it's it's partly the 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 what what it is itself, but it's also how it's read by the American public and for the Biden administration, frustration to uh, perhaps underplay it, uh, you know, say, well, you know, just continue on with the visit and, and so forth, didn't send the right domestic message. So it's, so it's an important message to be sent internationally, like in, in, the, in the bilateral relationship, and people are now talking about that relationship, as you just said, being under some level of new strain as a result of this incident. But it's also about that sort of domestic messaging
1: Absolutely. And I think what we have to remember now is that not only is the Biden administration governing, they are also now moving into a campaign mode. We are very close to the US primary process starting up and, uh, you know, with the, the, the whole campaign for the elections next year really kicking off and moving into gear. And so absolutely everything uh, can be weaponized politically. And I think. Biden is acutely aware of that. And certainly there is a very vociferous uh, China kind of industrial complex in uh, in the Republican Party at the moment. Um, and, you know, while there has been very much a bipartisan consensus developing on a lot of areas of the UK-China relationship, um, I think it's absolutely the case that the decisions that Biden is making Now we are moving into that campaigning spectre, Uh, you know, certainly have one very firm eye on national security, but also at least peripheral vision towards uh, the electoral politics of, of how these things play out.
0: Yeah, because one of the senior Republicans fairly quickly said that, you know, shooting it down once it had gone over the mainland was akin to tackling a quarterback, tackling a quarterback after the game is over. Uh, I heard a fairly good retort to that too from the administration saying well this chap knows even less about uh football less about national security than he knows about football I think was the line. Um but yeah you can th- right there that sort of demonstrates your point I guess that this is uh, very very quickly uh, becomes part of the domestic domestic discourse here and um and that's the nature of it and it's only going to get worse as the elections get closer.
1: Absolutely. And I also think with um, questions of shooting something down uh, of that scale on American soil um, without, Really, fundamentally, being able to control where it's it would dissent, fall yeah. and 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 the risks it would pose. I mean, one only has to cast one's mind back to nine eleven and some of the decisions that were being taken then about about whether or not you would be shooting down these planes. And I mean, you know, it's. I think it's it's really quite up there in the spectrum of decisions that presidents never want to have to take.
0: Yeah, that's right. And as I, as I said before, at, at that kind of altitude, um, it, it's very difficult to predict where uh, the area over which uh, that sort of debris can land. And if it's if it's you know massive as we understand it is, because this was a huge craft, then um, yeah, that's a it's a, a difficult decision to take. And apparently, Biden was advised by by the uh, military that uh, this was the appropriate way to do it. Wait till it got over over ocean, and then um, and then handle it there. We'll see what what comes from that. Biden, of course, is, you know, as some people will be listening to this, will uh, either be about to or just have to, uh, um, done the um, State of the Union address, uh, which will be interesting to see as well. Because Biden, I don't know what you make of Biden, but um, uh, it's interesting, everything I see of him, and I don't wish to, to um, you know, just sort of fall into stereotype territory here, but... He just looks so uncertain, and, and you know he he sort of oozes this sort of tremulousness in in, in sort of everything he does and says. He's very scripted. He, the way he moves, he doesn't seem like he's got a lot of um, presence. And yet, he did extremely well by historical standards in the midterms. Uh, and there are, you know, people who I respect, who I read, who say that he definitely should have a crack at a second term. Yeah. And I sort of think they seeing am I seeing the same thing? I don't know.
1: I think uh certainly uh public speaking does not necessarily feel uh, like his strength at at this point in time, um, but <laughs> after I do being
0: th- in the Senate since he was twenty nine, uh, yeah. well,
1: indeed, and and look, I mean, I you know, I I think a lot of the commentary about his age and so on can be overblown. Um, I certainly don't think he's senile or feeble in any kind of way, and I think certainly behind the scenes, I think he's governing with conviction. I think what he has done is built a pretty talented team, um, and a young team who have a lot of energy and discipline and focus. And, and they are performing pretty effectively in, in a lot of ways. I mean, if you look at some of the legislation they've been able to get through and certainly things like the CHIPS Act, which, you know, have fundamentally altered the dynamics of the UK, sorry, the US China relationship. So I think he's got some real runs on the board, um, There will certainly be people who feel that, uh, you know, others would be a more compelling public face for the nation and the world.
0: Um, That's actually a good point, isn't mm -hmm. it? Because there isn't really anyone who stands out. Um, It's unlike the parliamentary system which we have here and in the UK. You, You just don't have that sort of alternative government sitting there and you don't have within the government necessarily people who are able to sort of get up and perform and, and to shine in the ways that front benches, ministers might be able to do in in a, in a government here. And no one, from what I can tell, really seriously stands out as an alternative to Biden on the Democrat side. Now, that's not to say someone couldn't emerge, but uh, 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 would you agree with that or do, do you yes, see, I th- is it, you know, Pete Buttigieg or or you know, Kamala Harris, these are the sorts of names that come up, but people dismiss them as well.
1: Well, I think all of those candidates are seen to have very big, weak spots. Um, in some ways, I don't think the field has really advanced since the last election, you know, and, and that whole Democrat primary process from which Biden uh, came out strongest. And I, so really on balance, looking across the field, he still probably is the strongest candidate because... Uh, you know, he's actually now also has the power of incumbency. And I think the fact that because on the Republican side, there's just so many actors there. I mean, we are anticipating another very large field. Um, and as you say, because you don't have a singular figure there that sort of acts as the kind of leader of the opposition, I think the sort of chaos that can inspire and the sense of risk taking um once again reinforces the power of the incumbent. I think, you know, certainly from Westminster we are watching very closely because I think the lack of predictability in the outcome of that next election is is something that is weighing on us. It's such a vital security partnership for us and I think we've done a lot of work um and the Americans are aware of this to make sure that we build a kind of more enduring aspect to that and feel very confident that despite the political turbulence we're anticipating, that the systems will keep working well as they have done through Trump and, and so on. The institutional Amazingly, relationships yeah. Yeah. yeah, have remained very strong. Um, but the political unpredictability does make it a little hard um, for some of those things that can only ever be unlocked on a political level. So we're we're watching that field very closely. And I think, you know, people like Ron DeSantis and so on, um, trying to just sort of spend the time understanding uh, what makes them tick. And I think in particular, an issue that we are watching closely is where the Republican Party is going to land on Ukraine, because some of the more recent uh, votes In Congress, around authorizing financial instruments for Ukraine, there has been sort of an increasing trend towards dissent from the GOP. Mm. Now, coming back to the point about the fact that we are now in a campaigning environment, it's really difficult to unpick how much of that is that they fundamentally don't support um, the U.S., devoting a lot of resources to support Ukraine, um, and how much of that is wanting to destabilize or undermine the efforts of the Biden administration. So I think there's there's a big exercise going on at the moment just to try to, to really get the lay of the land because, of course, we are... Very much leading the European response in Ukraine and the US contribution remains absolutely vital. So yeah. we well, just well, need stability in that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, we're going to come back to Ukraine uh, in the second half, but just before we go to a break, uh, just on, on just sort of sticking with your point about the sort of domestic framing of that in the US in terms of uh, its politics. I mean, Trump's position. In particular, he's emerging. He obviously has already announced he's the only candidate. Or I think actually two candidates have now announced, haven't they? At least, but but Trump's the you know the 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 front runner or seen as such, and uh, he's been particularly strong on on sort of uh, weighing into this Ukraine debate. He said the other day, for example, very Trump like comment that he could fix the the, the situation in you know, in 24 hours or something similar, some ludicrous comment like that. Um, He's, of course, had a, you know, a a friendship with Putin in the past. I don't know whether that's what he's talking about. But Trump, given that he's such a sort of a shoot from the hip sort of operator, really could be that sort of factor you were just talking about that enters this, you know, blunders into this very difficult uh, um, sort of foreign policy strategic question and just says things that, are quite influential on his party and uh, and change the the domestic framing of it.
1: Yes, and and that's a pretty terrifying thought for us. I mean, I think the idea of Trump Mark II is is quite different from a first Trump term, and that's partly because the thing about Trump that was so interesting is that really all he fundamentally wanted was establishment credibility, mm. and so in his first term he brought in all these sort of. Strong men, generals, and and so on, surrounded yes, a himself.
0: Whole, whole raft of them, yeah, in,
1: indeed, and surrounded himself with all these kind of big, sort of um, you know, defense heavyweights from the bush era and so on. Yeah, it looked uh, like
0: the Politburo it was sort of
1: well, indeed, and and obviously, you know, the vast majority of them ended up becoming utterly exasperated, mm-hmm. or they pushed back against him in 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 so many ways, uh, you know, and so there was sort of a constant. Head rolling uh, of generals going on, but but you know that was a safeguard, and that was part of the you know the the system and the institutions holding up um, against a very disruptive force. And you know, obviously, some of the memoirs and so on that have come out from that period um, are, are quite alarming on where things could have gone if those guardrails had not been there. And I think there is a concern, partly because what. Trumpism has reshaped the Republican Party in a way that there is now not just, you know, Trump and, and sort of a few mavericks around him. There's an entire intellectual culture. There are think tanks and so on that have developed in the mode of this kind of Trumpian way of looking at the world. Hmm. Um so So, you know when there are donor bases and so on so all of that kind of intellectual infrastructure has been built up now that wasn't there before, and I think the idea of that sort of being harnessed and activated in a way that could be more effective and without those guardrails, I think that starts to become a more chilling proposition.
0: It does, and it, it, when you think about you know going back to Trump as you say, he wanted some establishment credibility it. and he also had never been elected to anything before he comes to a second term if he does get there as as someone who's actually learned a little bit on the job. I mean, one of the big criticisms of of him was that he didn't do much learning on the job, but he certainly learned some lessons about who he wants to sack and which walls he wants to just simply crash through. And he started really doing that. And that's a dangerous prospect as well. So yes, we'll have to watch that. Let's go quickly to a break and come back and we'll talk about perhaps a couple of things in the UK and, and the Ukraine question. or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. You're with Mark Kenny on Democracy Sausage, which comes to you from the Australian National University. That little glass clink that you heard there was from Sophia Gaston, who is with me in the studio, which is terrific. Normally we speak to her when she's in the UK where she lives, but uh, she's with us here in the studio visiting Australia at the moment. Um, We were talking, uh, we've been talking a little bit about uh, about you know American politics British politics Ukraine let's just, just uh, stick to or go to British politics for a moment because I'm very interested to hear your assessment of where Rishi Sunak is he recently or not so long ago passed the 100 day mark which you know one of those things that doesn't actually mean much but uh, we often talk about it um, and uh, I noticed that you know there's there's A fair bit of noise. Liz Truss uh, has, um, you know, sort of put her head up lately and said that she was mugged by the left, or I can't remember exact terms. Uh, So, how do you think the government is going? Looks like it's in a fair bit of trouble from where I see it.
1: I mean, certainly the polls are showing a sort of Labour landslide to victory. I'm, I'm a little bit more sceptical on that. Not least of all because the practical reality of Labour. Labour's electoral map is quite tough and there are actually boundary review changes that will be coming in effective of the next election, right. uh, which certainly favour the Conservatives, um, some of the redrawing of, of boundaries there.
0: Are you talking about those kind of red wall seats or are you talking about lots and lots of seats all it's over the country? across the country, the country oh.
1: yes, and actually what that's going to mean is a bunch of MPs that are sort of familiar faces, uh, uh, their seats will be redrawn and so everyone's going to have to move around and, and mm. shuffle it a little bit. But overall, it, it does somewhat benefit conservatives that redrawing of the electoral map. So, I I think you know Labour performed so poorly at the last election that the enormous lurch to even you know seek a majority of one is is an incredible feat, and the idea that that could be done in one electoral term is is you know quite. Improbable in 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 normal terms. That said, I do think that the extraordinary events um, of the past year, uh, it, politically, <laughs> yes, uh, do put us in some quite uncharted terrain. Um, certainly, Rishi Sunak has done a a really exceptional job at stabilising. Um, public opinion, particularly on competence, which is uh, where the Conservatives have fought back some gains. I do think that uh, there are still some issues that the Conservatives are are owning, um, that Labour is still fighting a bit of an uphill battle on. But Labour has- What are they? Well, I think on some elements of national security and the economy and so on, the sort of traditional- uh, domains of of conservative parties, there are still some areas there where where the conservatives are sort of remaining. There, there is a legacy, um, a loyalty there. Um, and also, I think it's very important to remember just how close we are to that disastrous Corbyn era and how much profound damage and scarring that did to the Labour brand. And I think it just does really go to show what a tremendous job the Starmer administration have done, um, as you know, in, in in his role as leader of the opposition to you know get a competent
0: to be so competitive now, yeah. indeed,
1: and get a competent shadow front bench there and and really be clawing at the conservatives on some of those traditional uh areas. They have sought bipartisan credibility on a lot of areas of security and foreign policy and defense, um, which I think has been the right thing to do and and I think on some areas they are definitely leading the conservatives so I think you know there 's definitely a path there for labor um, but i don 't think that we should absolutely discount the idea that the conservatives could. You know, coddled together a vastly reduced majority, or even I think perhaps more probable that we could have a hung parliament. Um, and I think it's important to just set the scene of how sort of traumatized the British people have been. And so I think in some ways... There is a question about what the conception of the status quo and the path path of the least resistance actually is in an environment like that. Are people ready to change to a different political party? Is that change something that gives them more security, or does staying with what they know give them more security? And
0: yeah, it's an interesting point actually. When you've had so you know a almost continuous ruction, you know, right back from the Brexit referendum and everything that flowed after that. Um, it's uh it's very destabilizing, and soon that comes along after you know so much so much turmoil uh and if he does steady the ship, then maybe some voters will be saying well i'm I'm not going to vote for another you know sort of upsetting of the of the status quo. Is that what you're saying
1: i think I think that what we have now is a situation that is um you know some uh, a situation where people can sigh a huge uh, you know, sigh of relief that we have essentially two pretty centrist, pragmatic, technocratic leaders there. Jostling over the centre ground, and considering where we've been yeah. <laughs> over the past six, seven, eight years, um, I think people feel, frankly, quite relieved by that, and and certainly soothed by that. The decision does not feel existential, so it's it is different now. I would say that there are some dynamics that are playing into things that you know are are, are again quite extraordinary and do put us in unusual times. I mean, certainly the war in Ukraine and the extraordinary impact that's had on energy prices as well as the inflation and cost of living crisis. I mean, just to give a sense of what this is like, the recent um, ONS, the, the uh, big national statistics body, they do surveys all the time. Um, the most recent surveys that they've done um, just the, the last week or two show that a quarter of Brits say that they are regularly experiencing feeling profoundly cold in their homes. Mm. Um, you know, people are not putting the heating on. Um, they're shivering in their houses. You know, it is it is tough. And, you know, I think certainly people who are, um, you know, were already struggling to make ends meet, I think this this has put us in 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 crisis territory, and I think the government's well aware of that. Then we've got the strikes, um, which you know every other day. Some I think the major are, part are, are of out it.
0: at the moment, right? And yes, and but there's a lot of public support for it. I read.
1: So uh, it certainly depends on the different industry. Effectively, there is a lot of public support for pay rises for nurses, um, junior doctors, and teachers. When you get to the rail unions and so on, uh, less so. Mm. Um, But, you know, it has been extraordinary. You have some days where you might have seven or eight different industries all on strike at the one time. Um, What I would say about that is just the British people are being extraordinarily resilient about it. I mean, no one really, um, it, 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 no one is really, you know, complaining or say, saying that it's disrupting their lives. They're just sort of getting on with it. Except things. for when
0: the rail strike happens.
1: Well, it, even then, I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, you know, everyone just sort of says, oh, okay, well, I'll have to get the bus today or I'll get up early because I'll have to walk this far to get to mm, X or Y. Okay. So I, th- I think actually people are, um, are, are sort of really holding their nerve on it. I think they expect the government to capitulate on some areas. But frankly, you know, the the state situation with state finances is really tough. And I think... It's important to to um, characterize Rishi's premiership very much in terms of a, a, a deep resource constrained environment, and he is head down, and I think that is something that he has really, you know, has has very much been conveyed to the British public and I think they actually are very receptive to that. He is there is a sense that he is head down trying to solve these issues. He's is crunching the numbers. He's working out how to get the country onto a more sustainable economic footing. Um, you know, and, and he hasn't been hugely visible. He hasn't been sort of out and about uh, doing a lot of PR. He's uh, very much the idea is I'm behind the scenes working day and night to try and solve this. So we actually have It's a sort of it's quite a quiet government in that respect. Um, and, And I think that is very much just reflective of the times we're in.
0: Yeah how does how has labor's messaging gone through this around the industrial question in particular because that's often quite difficult for labor parties to to sort of simultaneously support uh the right of workers to take industrial action uh you know that's where they're they're that um, they arise from labor parties uh, sorry they arise from trade unions I should say um and and yet, at the same time, they need to be very careful because uh, a lot of people are, are inconvenienced when strikes occur. There's damage to the economy, which, as you say, is already in a very precarious state. So, how, how's Starmer and his team gone about messaging in relation to teachers and train drivers, nurses, and the like?
1: Well, it's um, it, it has been quite extraordinary in that, um, you know, Starmer, as, as leader of the Labour Party, made clear that. Uh, there was absolutely to be no Labour MPs out there joining picket lines, and and that has been judiciously enforced. Um, that any Labour MP that joined a picket line would would lose the whip, and uh, that that is that is pretty striking, and mm. um, that very much reflects the fact that uh, Labour HQ feels that their path to victory is certainly not going to be won through being on the side of uh, the strikers the striking workers and you know that they have to be on the side of the silent majority. But they
0: are on the side of more investment in the NHS, they are on the side of more yep. investment in schools and teaching. Yep. So it's kind of a delicate
1: The the angle they're playing is, is, you know, I mean, it's it's tricky. Um, Essentially, they're saying that the government has mishandled the negotiations with these different unions. And, you know, they've been quite, uh, you know, oblique about uh, exactly how they would have handled them. Um, They keep saying you need to get back around the table. But I mean, the reality is that... The, the issues coming from government in terms of the negotiations here and the inability to resolve the strikes are not because people aren't sitting down at the table. It's because government just frankly can't find the money to do it. Oh. And and so, I, you know, the one of the great pleasures of opposition is that you don't need to find the money. No. Um, so I think they're aware of that. But I think they are also aware of the fact that it would not be credible at the moment to be trying to um, – uh, you know, lead with a message from opposition that does not take into account the very constrained economic environment, and so you know I think there is an acknowledgement that hard choices have to be made. Um, you know, a, a, a across the board. Um, so certainly, uh, when the type of messages that we're seeing coming out of Labour. It's not a spend, spend, spend um, kind of social democrat message. This is this is a measured, quite um, fiscally conservative.
0: Um, they emphasise competence and stability, exactly. and and, exactly. and having a plan, exactly, rather, rather, an antidote to the to the previous years. Yeah, Indeed. well, it's going to be fascinating to watch that as it plays out. How long till the election?
1: We're anticipating the election next year, 2024, which um, I think there was always a sense that the Conservatives would go long um, in this term, and uh, I think I they'll why. absolutely <laughs> they will absolutely stick to that.
0: Yeah. Now, look, let's get on to Ukraine because uh, you mentioned before about uh, Britain's role in you know very strongly and and forcefully standing with Ukraine. Um, ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, has um, been he's, he's made you know comments like we're, we're sticking with Ukraine all the way to victory, Um, we recently saw that um, that, that issue play out over whether Germany was going to allow Leopard 2, its battle tanks, the Leopard 2, said to be a you know, very uh, um, appropriate, the best battle tank around, um, if, if, if it was going to allow its tanks and the tanks that it had sold to other countries in Europe to be supplied to the Ukrainians. Now, it played out over a fairly long period of time. Germany took a lot of criticism for how long it took and it eventually came to a view that, yes, it would supply some of its tanks and allow other countries to donate theirs as well. What did that tell us about where Germany is at the moment and where Europe is at the moment?
1: Well, what it tells us is that, you know, Germany went, had its Seidenwander uh, last year. They had their big moment of, of you know, a complete Pivot hmm. um, on on national security, and they put a hundred billion euros um, earmarked, safeguarded in the budget for this. But the cultural shift to really start to think of themselves as a national security actor is a much bigger, longer term process, and we are not there. And it has not come naturally uh, to the German government. And I think you know, it's this is also to the chagrin of the French because I think. Certainly, France has also come under quite a lot of criticism for its sort of tepid response mm. on, on Ukraine.
0: And these are the two biggest economies in Europe.
1: Absolutely. Mm. And, and France is sort of, you know, behind Britain, uh, you know, one of the leading security um, actors in, in the Euro Atlantic. I think the thing is for Macron, he thought this is a moment to show the EU as a collective defense instrument but when you have germany kind of dragging its heels and and making everything difficult that's undermining the entire eu brand which is where the french have put all their you know eggs in that basket so um i think there is a reckoning in in paris as well that they've lost the soft power battle on this too so i think you know what the brits did well was acting uh quickly and decisively and unfortunately the EU was unable to do that. Um, so what you've seen is sort of a a kind of reshaping of the security environment, um, and and a lot more kind of minilateralism forming. I mean, the Jeff, you know, and and, and also increasingly a lot of, you know, Nordic and and other powers looking for kind of more bilateral security engagement um, via the UK in terms of amplifying their their response on Ukraine. So um, I think it has been a troubling episode for the EU and how it thinks about this ambition for strategic autonomy, because in some ways it's actually the Brits who've made the strongest case for European strategic autonomy.
0: Yeah, the Brits who've left Europe. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Well, not left Europe, and that's the point they've left the european union sure and uh, you know so so what all this does is compel a fresh conversation about the european security architecture and i think what is absolutely clear is that you just can't have a situation where Brussels is talking about the UK as a third country in these conversations because really the UK should be leading a lot of those conversations. So I, th- I think it has shifted the dynamics quite substantively. I mean, I'd, I would love to see um, us partnering with the French to help take the Germans on that journey um, to thinking about how they're going to spend that $100 billion. Um, I would say on Ukraine, though – in terms of the conflict, I mean, we are we're coming into the second year. We're nearly up to that anniversary now, mm. and I think some of the conversations in Whitehall are starting to get quite serious and somber because I think there is a feeling that this probably won't be resolved this year, and that we are looking at a more entrenched conflict, which absolutely is to Putin's benefit. And
0: I think well, well this is the this is the concern, isn't it? I mean, there's there's a bit of a discourse around this this idea that. Um, that the West, all of this military support, is enabling Ukraine to stay in the fight, to 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 possibly fight to a stalemate or some something approximating a stalemate, but that Ukraine doesn't have a realistic proposition of of rolling the Russian forces back to its you know pre twenty fourteen borders, uh, and and that it's unlikely that Putin's going to back down and that he's just going to throw more and more resources at it that that's a, that's a concern isn't it just i mean what that actually means no one really wants to talk about this but what that actually means is that at some point like all wars it has to be resolved politically well
1: i think one of the huge problems is that we've come to see that putin's got nothing to lose here right he's 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 bet the house so there's no incentive for him to pull back and he's also shown that he's Contemptuous for human life and and happy to throw his citizens into the meat grinder, mm-hmm. um, you know, w- without thought or feeling. Was um, ever thus? It, indeed, and you know, he spent this winter, uh, you know, amassing hundreds of thousands of more young men, pulling them from all over the country, and and they're going to be ready to to go in again um, in this new front that we're anticipating um, in the spring. I think. The real challenge is that we are having to make a calculation about whether or not Russia can be defeated on the basis of the instruments that we are willing to provide and up to our red lines. And we've made those red lines fairly clear, which is, you know, we have a NATO boundary there. We're not putting troops on the ground. We are reinforcing the NATO boundary, but we are not overstepping the NATO boundary. When we start to get into things like fighter jets, and I think this is important to the conversations that Germany has been having domestically around the leopard tanks. You know, there is an escalatory feeling here because every time we send Ukraine um, new kits. They of course then want the next mm-hmm. um, thing, and and that's because you know they're defending their country. And they absolutely. Want to win. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you know we should be arming and supporting the Ukrainians decisively. And I think there is a very fair argument that all these delays in you know us getting our act together and sending all this stuff. I mean, if we'd really just got it all together at the beginning and and really pursued this with the kind of force you know that the uk showed and you know if all countries had been on board behind that then you know we we might be in a better position now so so i i don't i think it's the right thing that a country like germany is sending those tanks i think it's unfortunate that it took so long to do it but i do wonder where we're getting to with the fighter jets because i think we're getting very close to our own red lines mm. and and that is a conversation that we have not had publicly yet and we have told i mean The support for Ukraine in the UK is just extraordinary and people are willing and and are making profound daily sacrifices uh, because of it and they're absolutely comfortable to do that for now.
0: And it's bipartisan in the UK? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Interesting, Interesting,
0: given what we were saying about the US. It would be interesting to see whether that fractures in the US in any significant degree.
1: Yes, but not in the UK. It is bipartisan support and the British people, you know, if you drive around the country, even in the most provincial parts of the country, you'll see Ukrainian flags, you know, people, we are all in mm-hmm. institutionally and, and and societally. But, you know, I, I do think that because we've made a case about this morally, which I absolutely believe in and, and support, we haven't also had conversations about the sort of tactical and strategic elements of this, which I think we're going to get to more of the pointy end this year. So, yeah,
0: and there, are, and there are moral dimensions anyway to this, right? Absolutely. Which is the moral question about whether it is uh, appropriate to just be in a state of more or less constant war that, that, isn't, that has no real prospect, no realistic prospect of, of resolution and the loss of life and suffering that goes on as a result of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a question obviously for the Ukrainians, uh, but it's still a a, a profound moral consideration.
1: I think it's absolutely right that we are supporting the Ukrainians in any way that we can now. And it, you know, I think we should be absolutely resolute and we need the West to stay together on this. Mm. But we also need to resolve within the alliance a clear vision about what. Victory actually means, and I think without that uh, consensus around that idea, it's going to become increasingly difficult to get countries like Germany and and others to you know turn that switch and say, okay, yes, more, mm. more, more. Yeah. Um. So there needs to be there needs to be a plan, and there needs to be agreement around that. And I don't think we're quite there yet, but I do think that we're going to have to start having some of these conversations this year.
0: You've been listening to Sophia Gaston from the. She's the head of foreign policy and UK resilience at Policy Exchange, a think tank in the UK. Uh, Sophia, thanks for being here in in Australia, in Canberra, in Australian National University studio for Democracy Sausage.
1: My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: It's always great to talk to you, and you've got uh, so much expertise and it bring a perspective to us from the Northern Hemisphere that uh, that we don't normally get, and really appreciate it. So thanks very much. Thank you. And that is Democracy Sausage for this week. Uh, We look forward to seeing you next week. You've been listening to a podcast coming out of Australian National University, as I think I've probably said about three times, Uh, and we'll look forward to talking to you again next time.